Hi, everyone. Before we get started today, just want to make a quick announcement. This coming Wednesday, June 10th, I have my online Bible study on the book of Acts beginning. This will run four sessions on four consecutive Wednesdays, June 10th, June 17th, June 24th, and July 1st. They'll be at 7 p.m. Central Time, and I'll be live streaming them on my Facebook page and my YouTube channel. The easiest way to find either of those is to go to the podcast website, www.sundaydive.com. Click on either the YouTube icon or the Facebook icon, like the channel, uh, subscribe to the channel, I should say, like the page, enable notifications, and you will be all set if you tune in 7 p.m. this coming Wednesday, June 10th for session one of the Book of Acts. Hope to see you there. Hello and welcome to another edition of Sunday Dive. I'm Katie Patrizio, and today we're talking about the readings for the Feast of Corpus Christi, June 14, 2020. Our gospel today is from Jesus's famous Bread of Life discourse in John 6. Having been filled at the multiplication of loaves and fishes, Jesus's followers interpret the abundance of bread to be the new manna foretold in Jewish tradition. Jesus does not correct the crowd's interpretation outright, but rather seeks to deepen it, explaining that the bread which he multiplied only gives mortal life, whereas the true manna which he will give, his flesh and blood in the Eucharist, will provide for eternal life. Thanks for tuning in. Our readings today are some of the most famous, or gospel at least I should say, is is one of the most famous gospels. Um, it's from John chapter 6, uh, typically called the Bread of Life Discourse, which shouldn't be too incredibly surprising considering that the readings we're going to cover today are for the Feast of Corpus Christi. Um, also called the Solemnity of the Body and Blood of Christ. So it's a celebration, a feast of the Eucharist. Um, And I should note really quick that um, the feast is not always celebrated on a Sunday. Uh, In some places, it's celebrated on a Thursday, from what I understand. Um, And so uh, some places may be celebrating the 11th Sunday in Ordinary Time, on June 14th, 2020, but we, uh, most dioceses in the United States are going to be celebrating Corpus Christi, the Solemnity of the Body and Blood of Christ, and so we are going to cover those readings, and they're exciting readings. So let's dive in, reading together as we usually do the gospel, which is from John chapter 6, verses 51 through 58. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. 
This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate and they died. But the one who eats this bread will live forever. That was the Gospel of John chapter 6, verses 51 through 58. To fully grasp the profundity of our gospel, we have to kind of do a backup a couple of different times. Because uh, what we have here in verses 51 through 58 is a, a snapshot, a small section of a sermon that Jesus delivers at the synagogue in Capernaum. Uh, but John 6 as a whole contains even more than that. So John 6 is not simply the famous bread of life discourse delivered by Jesus at the synagogue in Capernaum, but it's also, uh, John 6 also contains the famous uh, story of the multiplication of the loaves and fishes. And this is one of the favorite miracles uh, for people to talk about. This is one of the easiest miracles for people to uh, remember. This is one of the most frequently depicted miracles, right? Everyone seems to know about the five loaves and the fish, right, that Jesus uh, multiplied into uh, enough food to feed 5,000. And what's fascinating is that uh, not only is this gospel or this uh, miracle, I should say, of the multiplication of the loaves and fishes uh, ubiquitously popular in our culture, even our Christian, uh, I was going to say our Christian culture, but even in our, in the larger culture, because it's so well known, it's actually the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. And so it is extremely important. And, and when we, as we kind of do a comparison and uh, a, a kind of vacillating between the, the multiplication of the loaves and fishes and the bread of life discourse at John 6, you're going to realize really quickly why the miracle of the multiplication of loaves and fishes or the miracle of uh, the feeding of the 5,000 is really, really important for Jesus's ministry. So again, that's the broader context. So the broader context of verses 51 through 58 is the full bread of life discourse, the sermon preached by Jesus in the synagogue in Capernaum. And then even prior to that, contextually, is the story of the multiplication of the loaves and fishes. That's how John chapter six kicks off. And what? why is the story of the multiplication of the loaves and fishes so important to our gospel and so important to Jesus's public ministry and even so important to the Jewish people who witnessed the miracle? Because as we're gonna look at in a few minutes, the reaction to Jesus's multiplication of the loaves and fishes is, is ecstatic. So if we can discern that there's some importance behind this miracle or some, some heightened importance behind, the, behind this miracle simply because it's contained in all four Gospels, it's the only miracle contained in all four Gospels, we can also see that it's deeply important for the Jewish audience that experienced this miracle precisely because of the reaction that the people have to this miracle. So, so what is the reaction that the people have to this miracle? Well, 
so so Jesus is with the people. Uh, it tells us he goes up on the mountain, which which is a, a little important detail to to, to hold on to. And uh, the people are there to listen to him, but they grow hungry and there's not uh, food around and there's definitely not enough money to buy food to feed all the people. So what does Jesus do? He takes what uh, can be found, some loaves and some fish, and he uh, prays over it. Uh, offers thanks. In fact, he does a formula that he's going to, he uses a kind of formula that he we're going to see uh, at the Last Supper. So there's already like Eucharistic undertones, overtones in the, the feeding of the 5,000. And then he gives the food to be distributed. And um, it is distributed so that um, all 5,000 present, and we're not even clear if 5,000 is the total number or it's just counting men, but all 5,000 are able to not only get some, but they're able to eat their fill. And after this, at John 6, verses 14 and 15, the gospel tells us that the people exclaim, they have this ecstatic reaction and they exclaim, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And then it goes on to say, John goes on to say that perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, these are details that are really easy to gloss over. But they're deeply important, okay? Because um, Jesus is in his person is not always met with the uh, the excitement that he's met with here at the beginning of John six. At, at the beginning of John six, it says they're gonna they're gonna take him and forcibly make him king. Not only are they desiring to to make him king, but they also declare that he is a prophet, all right? This is really different from the reaction that um, the Jewish people have, uh, for example, at Jesus's trial, right? What do they say? We have no king but Caesar, right? But here in this moment, after witnessing the miracle of the multiplication of the loaves and fishes, they declare Jesus a prophet and they want to make him king, okay? And these are both very important details. Why? Let's start with prophet, because that's what they exclaim first. This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, what is that a reference to? That's a reference to something very specific. So in the Old Testament, Moses prophesied that in the age to come, there would be one like him, who would be uh, risen up. And th- this this one like him, this prophet like him, came to be understood as the Messiah or the new Moses, all right? So when they declare, when the people declare that this is indeed the prophet who is to come to the world, they're essentially saying this is the new Moses, that Moses himself prophesied would come into the world and usher in the, the age to come, the Messianic age. And and this this idea of Jesus being the prophet who's to come into the world, the 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 new Moses is is confirmed by the fact that they continue on their 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 action that they take, identifying Jesus as the prophet who is to come into the world, 
is to try to make him king, okay? And there's there's a, a very direct correlation between king and Messiah, um, even in a way linguistically, because Messiah comes from the Hebrew Mashiach, which means anointed one. And the king was always anointed. So the Davidic king, for example, was a kind of Messiah. And in, in many ways, what the people were waiting for in the Messiah was the uh, son of David who was going to come and rule upon the throne once more. And so this idea of Jesus being the prophet who was to come into the world, the new Moses is confirmed very much by the fact that the action that the people want to take after witnessing the multiplication of the loaves and fishes is to make Jesus king and even forcibly to make him king. But Jesus refuses this and he withdraws from them and he goes up onto the mountain. So now we need to ask ourselves, what was it about the multiplication of the loaves and fishes that led the people to believe so emphatically that Jesus was the new Moses that Moses himself had prophesied? Well, what is one of the things that Moses did that that is, is correlated with this miracle at John 6. So at John 6, Jesus multiplies again. I I know I keep summarizing, but Jesus multiplies these loaves and fishes to feed the people. Moses, after having brought the people out of Egypt, we read about this in Exodus 16, to provide for the, the hunger of the people in the wilderness is able to, uh, garner from God the showering down of the manna, okay? The miraculous bread from heaven. Let's read a little bit from Exodus 16 to get a kind of idea of what we're we're talking about here. So at Exodus uh, 16 verse 1, we're told on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt, the whole congregation of the people of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness and said to them, would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and ate bread to the full for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now, I this is one this is one of my favorite uh, verses to discuss because I don't want to paint the Israelites in a a horribly bad light because um, all of us get hangry at times. Uh, But nevertheless, it's not quite like uh, God is responding to um, the the subtle and uh, understandable whimperings of his little children who uh, haven't eaten in a long time. And, And they're handling it pretty well, but, but God just doesn't like to see them go hungry. No, um, the Israelites are, uh, uh, they're just obnoxious here in chapter 16. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and ate bread to the full. What are they saying? And, and by the way, they were led out of Egypt on the, the first month in the first month, right? And it tells us that it's the 15th day of the second month. So they've been gone for like six weeks, something like that. Six weeks. And they're saying, they're declaring, we wish that we had died in the plagues just like the Egyptians did. 
because at least when we were in Egypt, we could eat as much as we wanted. But now, now we're dying of hunger. I feel like that's quite literally what they're saying. For you have brought us out of the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And what the next verse does not say, even though it's totally implied, is that Moses rolled his eyes and the Lord did as well, right? Verse 4, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may prove them whether they will walk in my law or not. And then it goes on at verse 6. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your murmurings against the Lord. For what are we that you murmur against us? And then he goes on to promise, Moses goes on to say that the Lord is going to provide every morning bread for the people to eat. And this is the miraculous manna. All right, now a couple things about the manna. Um, The manna was temporary. Okay. If you continue reading in scripture, you'll find that every single morning, except for Sabbath mornings, um, the, the people gather the manna and they are only able to gather enough for the day. If they gather more than they need for the day, it rots really disgusting. Like the description is pretty gross. And that on the day before the Sabbath, they are able to to gather twice as much as they need. But nevertheless, God provides for them manna for every single day of their desert wanderings until they come into the promised land. And then the manna ceases. But there was an idea in ancient Jewish literature um, and rabbinic interpretation that there would come a time when the manna would begin again. There would come a time when the manna would begin again. And um, in, in preparing for this podcast, I rely a lot on this fantastic book by Dr. Brant Petrie called Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist. I cannot recommend it highly enough. But in this in this book, Dr. Petrie uh, talks about the Jewish literature and the rabbinic tradition of the idea that in in a new age, specifically in the Messianic age, we'll see that as we read these texts, the manna will start again. God will provide once more manna for his people. So um, this, this first text is from the Midrash. It says, as the first redeemer caused manna to descend as it is state, stated because I shall cause rain, cause to rain bread from heaven for you so will the latter redeemer cause manna to descend I'll read that again um, a little uh, a little shorter as the first redeemer caused manna to descend so will the latter redeemer cause manna to descend it's even fascinating that um, the rabbis refer to Moses as the redeemer because that, that's who they were referring to when they say as the first redeemer, redeemer caused manna to descend. So 
Moses is looked at as the redeemer of Israel. Well, why? Because he's the one who led them out of oppression and bondage in Egypt. So just as the first redeemer caused manna to descend, so will the latter redeemer cause manna to descend. And that latter redeemer, according to the rabbis, is going to be the Messiah, right? The second quotation is from a rabbinic commentary on the book of Exodus, It says, you will not find the manna in this age, but you shall find it in the age to come. You shall not find the manna in this age, but you shall find it in the age to come. And Dr. Petrie goes on to explain that the age to come refers to something specific. It's a phrase that specifically refers to the Messianic age, the time when the Messiah comes. And then this last text is from 2 Baruch, which is a non-biblical book or an extra-biblical book, I should say. It's a piece of Jewish apocalyptic literature. So 2 Baruch says, It will happen then that when all that which should come to pass in these parts is accomplished, the Messiah will begin to be revealed, and those who are hungry will enjoy themselves, and they will moreover see marvels every day. And it will happen at that time that the treasury of manna will come down again from on high, and they will eat of it in those days, because these are they who will have arrived at the time of consummation. It will happen at that time that the treasury of manna will come down again from on high. Now, you're a first century Jew aware of your own history and heritage, understanding that um, at the Exodus, when the first redeemer, Moses, brought Israel out of bondage in Egypt, he caused, uh, you know, through his intercession with God, bread to rain down from heaven, this miraculous manna, right? And you also know that... uh, that the rabbis foretell that when the Messiah comes, the manna will come again. When the Messiah comes, the manna will come again. So you are one of these first century Jews and you're in Galilee with Jesus and you've been listening to him preach and uh, it's time for a meal and the disciples, the apostles begin distributing food and somehow even without food trucks or a supermarket anywhere nearby, the thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people that are gathered together to hear Jesus are fed by him. The thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people gathered to hear Jesus are fed by him. Bread to the full. What would this make you think of? The new manna. And this is precisely why at John 6, 14 and 15, they say, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And it's why they try to take him and make him Messiah, because they understand that the one who causes manna to once more fall upon the earth must be the new 
redeemer. He must be the new Moses, and therefore he must be the Messiah. But Jesus is aware that they don't fully understand what he was doing just yet. And so he withdraws because it's not his time, right? It's not his time to be made king. He has, a, he has a time and a place and a way in which he shall mount his throne, but it is not at this, this time and this place or in this way that he is to become king. And so he withdraws from them. If we continue reading in John, we get a very brief interlude um, that talks about the story of Jesus calming the waters, walking on the water and calming the waters. Uh, and then after this, uh, we go straight back into the narrative that is is connected with the multiplication of the loaves and fish. So if you keep reading, um, you, you find that people essentially wake up the next morning in the location uh, where Jesus had been and he had multiplied the loaves and fish and they can't find him and uh, the disciples' boat is gone. And so they set out on their boats as well, looking for them. Jesus literally had throngs of people uh, looking for him. Um, it, it seems like quite often he was, he was a very famous sought after man, right? And so they come looking for him and they find him in Capernaum. And they start to ask him questions, questions about what happened the day before, uh, questions about whether or not he will continue doing miracles for him. So they say, uh, for example, uh, at verse 25 of John 6, Rabbi, when did you come here? So they're a little curious how he managed to slip away from them and, and come to Capernaum. Jesus doesn't answer the question but he uh, goes straight to the heart of the reason why they're following him around. Jesus says at verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life the food which endures to eternal life. What Jesus is essentially doing here and what he's going to continue doing in this this sermon that he's going to preach at the synagogue in Capernaum is to explain to him, explain to the people that that looked like manna. My multiplication of the loaves and fishes, it looked like manna, but it wasn't the manna. And so what Jesus is going to do at Capernaum which leads into our actual gospel of John 6, verses 51 through 58, is explained to them, yes, I'm going to reign. Yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, I'm going to rain down new manna upon the earth. But the manna which I fed you with, or the food which I fed you with yesterday, when I fed all 5,000 of you, that was not the new manna. Let me tell you about the new manna. Because he basically says to them that the manna or the food that he gave them at the multiplication, it was, it was like the manna that was given in the wilderness. How so? Because the manna given in the wilderness, the old manna, it was for uh, physical sustenance, right? It was for physical and temporal sustenance. 
the new manna that Jesus is going to give is for something more. And he hints at this at verse 27 in this initial back and forth that the people have with him. They say, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, you just want free food. Or you're just looking forward to the manna because that means you'll have your physical needs provided for. And if you put yourself in the place of a first century Jew who has been following Jesus around, you can understand what excitement there would be around Jesus feeding the crowds, right? Um, Look, they didn't have like paid time off back then. Um, So if you were not doing your day job in order to come seek out Jesus to hear him preach and to see his miracles, um, you were not getting paid for that day. And so when Jesus feeds the crowds, not only does he provide for them in that day, but if he continues to feed the crowd, people can just, people can quit their jobs and just follow Jesus around and and they'll get, they'll get food. They'll be fed. Not only that, but he kind of, he puts on a show for them a little bit with with miracles. I know I'm sounding a little bit crass here, but I think there is something um, like that that Jesus is is getting at here. That if you don't go deeper, if you don't move beyond, you're not going to get the true fruits of what our Lord has to offer. I was recently reading a book about... um, the apparitions of uh, Our Lady appearing to um, the the young people in Rwanda. And when Our Lady began appearing to the young people in Rwanda, Rwanda is not, uh, or at least was not at the time, a very developed country. And so um, people would travel from all over and uh, in very difficult conditions, um, you know, uh, some people had to actually, you know, at, at points machete their way through uh, wilderness to get to this town where Mary was appearing. And there were thousands of people that came from all over this, this country, Rwanda, to see Our Lady and to see the, the miraculous signs that were being done there. And one of the things that uh, during her apparitions that Our Lady warned about was the the possibility of great violence breaking out in Rwanda. And when I was reading this book, reflecting on the fact that thousands of people came from all over Rwanda to see Mary and that 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 would appear on the surface and in some ways would be a sign of, uh, of conversion and faithfulness, nevertheless, If you're familiar with recent history, you know that even though Mary foretold of what would become the Rwandan genocide, and even though thousands of people took time away from their work and went through great difficulty to see the apparitions, that didn't have the effect of preventing this great violence. 
And so that was what was at risk with Jesus's followers as well. That they had taken perhaps the initial step of allowing curiosity to cause them to seek out Jesus and hear what he had to say and see what miracles he had to do, but they weren't allowing his message to seep into their hearts. And in fact, as we continue reading in John 6, when Jesus explains to them what exactly the new manna is that he's going to rain down upon the earth, they actually leave him. They leave him. They say, I, we don't want that manna. Actually, that's that's not what we're interested in. But let's continue with this idea. So for Jesus, the old manna is temporal. And it supplies for temporal physical sustenance. So Jesus says, do not labor for the food which perishes. In other words, do not labor for the old manna but rather labor for the food which endures to eternal life. Labor for the food which endures to eternal life. And the the people understand the dialogue happening here because they bring up just a few verses later, the manna in the desert. So they say, okay, you don't want us to labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures for eternal life. They say to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God then? And Jesus says at verse 29, believe in him whom he has sent. In other words, believe in me. And what is the people's response? What sign are you going to do for us that we'll believe in you? That's the people's response. What sign are you going to do? that we will believe in you. And then they almost suggest a sign in keeping with everything we've been talking about, the themes we've been talking about, as if uh, discerning the themes themselves, which I believe they did. At verse 31, they suggest, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So it appears they might be suggesting a sign. Give us the manna. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Lord, give us this bread always. It sounds like they're perhaps getting there. But they must not be because Jesus continues to emphasize, I am not talking about material bread here. He continues, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. The Jews end up murmuring to themselves if we jump to verse 41. They say, uh, because Jesus is beginning to make his point really clear. He said, I am the bread of life. So at verse 41, they say, they, they murmur because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they, they say, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say now, I have come down from heaven? How does he say now, I have come down from heaven? So they understand 
that in the new age to come, the Messianic age, a new Moses will arrive. And just as Moses caused bread to rain down from heaven, miraculous bread, the new Messiah will also cause a new miraculous bread, a new manna to rain down from heaven. And when they see Jesus feed the 5,000 with only the five loaves and the two fish, they think this is the manna. And they begin to follow him around. Why? Because if it is the new manna, the manna of the old age, the manna of the Old Testament, it came daily, right? They say at verse 34, Lord, give us this bread always. And so they begin looking for the daily bread, which this is a little bit of a side, um, but it's fascinating because um, one of the things that we pray for in the Our Father is our daily bread, right? Um, in the There's a, a particular Greek word that's actually used by Jesus. It's epiousios which the best way to translate it, even quite literally, is to say um, super substantial. And so when we pray for our daily bread, we're not just praying for any bread that comes daily, but we're praying for super substantial bread. And this begins to get at the kind of manna that Jesus is going to give to us. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is where our gospel picked up at verse 51. But the the few verses just before that, that, that open up this gospel, further emphasize what Jesus is trying to teach the people here in the synagogue at Capernaum. The difference between the old manna, uh, the old manna, which is temporal, provides for temporal and physical sustenance, whereas the new manna provides for eternal spiritual substance. At verse 49, Jesus says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat of it and not die. And this this is where our gospel picks up. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. The bread which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And again, the Jews began murmuring and arguing with each other. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Because Jesus, every time he uh, he has to further explain, he ups the ante. Not because in that moment, Jesus is deciding um you know, that the Eucharist is what he's going to do. He knows that the Eucharist is what he's going to do. But in explaining it to them, he has to get more and more and more clear. And so we get the most emphatic language in Jesus's response to this murmuring, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? At verse 53, now we're into our gospel text itself. It says, Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat of the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. 
This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate and died. But the one who eats this bread will live forever. Dr. Petrie in his book, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, points out that um, we're told in Exodus that the manna tasted like honey. And he makes the argument that the manna tasted like honey because it was a foretaste of the promised land, which we're told flowed with milk and honey. And so in the manna, the people experienced a foretaste of the land to come, the promised land. So it is with the new manna, which is the Eucharist. The Eucharist is a foretaste of the promised land, of the land to come, of the life to come. How so? The promised land that Jesus leads us to when he, as the new Moses, initiates a new exodus, the promised land that he is leading us to is the promised land of heaven, of eternal life. And so this new manna is both a pledge and a foretaste of that promised land. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life and I will raise them on the last day. Is not that what heaven is about? Is that not what heaven is about? Being raised up on the last day. See, heaven isn't merely about my soul uh, being in union with God forever, although that's a part of it. But we cannot forget that the, the, the whole goal of, of Jesus conquering death and once more uh, taking his body to himself and not just a normal body, but a glorified body, is that we would have that promise as well. And so not only does Jesus promise us eternal life and eternal happiness with him in heaven, but he says, I will raise them up on the last day. And who is he going to raise up on the last day? Those who eat his flesh and drink his blood. Those who eat his flesh and drink his blood. We can explore this idea a little bit more um, by trying to discern what it is about this idea that repulses the Jewish people so much. Because if we if we continue reading um, past our gospel, which ends at uh, verse 58, we find more murmuring again. The, the, the people, and it actually calls them the disciples here. Uh, uh, his disciples murmur and uh, they say, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And it goes on to say that uh, at verse 66, after this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. Now, um, if you keep reading, you you get the distinction because at verse 67, it, it addresses Jesus speaking to the 12. So we're not talking about the 12 disciples here, but but when John uses the word disciples, he means, he means uh, fairly committed followers of Jesus. They can't handle the same. And there's, there's a lot of reasons why I think they can't handle this teaching on the new manna. But we can try to flesh out one of the reasons to understand uh, another way in which the Eucharist is a foretaste of the promised land, just as the first manna was a foretaste of the land flowing with milk and honey. How is that so? 
Well, one of the the reasons that scholars will put forth for why uh, the the Jewish followers, the Jewish disciples of our Lord, were so put off by this idea of eating flesh and drinking blood is precisely because um, doing such things was forbidden was forbidden by the law. So, for example, at Leviticus chapter seventeen, verse eleven, it's very specific. It says, uh, "You may not." Uh, drink the blood for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And so you're forbidden to consume blood. And Leviticus tells us precisely for the reason that the life of the flesh is in the blood. Now, uh, Dr. Petrie puts forth this idea, and this is a direct quote from Jesus and the Jewish roots of the Eucharist. He says, I suggest that the very reason God forbids drinking blood in the old covenant is the same reason Jesus commands his disciples to drink his blood. So what is the reason given in Leviticus 17.11 for the prohibition to drink blood? Because the life of the flesh is in the blood. And so what Dr. Petrie is saying is that what makes it forbidden in the old covenant is the same thing that um, makes it required in the new covenant. Why? Because the life of the flesh is in the blood. And so when you drink the blood of Jesus and when you eat his flesh and eat I just have a moment here saying that where it, it sounds off-putting. That's good. Um, most of us listening are probably Catholics and we get really used to the language of Jesus' body and blood in the Eucharist. It's important sometimes to be jarred by this idea. If not to just have a little bit of sympathy for the disciples of Jesus, but to understand just how jarring this is, just how jarring this teaching is. Not because I want to uh, stray you away from the Eucharist, but because I want you to understand the deep affection our Lord has for us in giving us his very flesh and blood. So, If the life of the flesh is in the blood, when Jesus gives us his blood to drink, he is giving us his very life. He is giving us his very life, and not just any life, but his resurrected life. And so just as the old manna tasting like honey was a foretaste of the promised land which flowed with milk and honey, so the new manna, the Eucharist, which is the flesh and blood of our Savior containing his very life is the foretaste and pledge of the promised land to come, which is eternal life in heaven, the resurrection on the last day. Verse 58, it's a beautiful way that our gospel ends and a beautiful way to wrap up our discussion. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like that which your ancestors ate and died, but the one who eats this bread will live forever. It's fascinating because scholars and theologians have pointed out that the only other time
time, food is discussed as being able to cause someone to live forever is the fruit of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. So at Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, uh, it says, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden. So the reason we're told at Genesis 3.22 that Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden is to prevent them from eating the tree of life. Because if they eat of the tree of life, they will live forever. Now, uh, people are perplexed by this because why wouldn't God want them to regain the immortality that they had prior to the fall that they lost by their sinfulness? Well, theologians will say that the reason that God does not allow them to take of the tree of life and regain immortality is because the immortality that they would have regained would have been an immortality with sin and suffering. It would be like living forever in the world in which we are right now. And so that that's not right. And so what Jesus does instead, what Jesus does instead is thousands of years later, having prepared the world for himself, he takes on human flesh. He becomes incarnate. He dies on the cross to do away with sin. And then, hanging on the cross, the wood of the new tree of life, he gives us the new fruit, which is his very body and blood, hanging from that tree so that when we eat of it, we shall live forever. Praise be Jesus for giving us this beautiful gift of the Eucharist, his very self, body, blood, soul, and divinity, because it is not enough for him to be perfectly near to us spiritually, but Jesus wants to be perfectly near to us physically when he comes inside of us dwelling within us in the eucharistic feast thanks be to god praise you jesus thanks for listening